Before we begin, just a friendly warning that this episode contains strong language and other adult themes, and therefore may not be suitable for all listeners. Hello, and welcome to the Modern Gestry Podcast, the place you go when you are hungry to learn, but you're just so sick and tired of being taught. I'm your host, Chris Parker, and if you're a seasoned historian, you'll know how these things go. I introduce the topic, I get on some boffin to talk about it, and we generally just chew the cud and spit the gist on something historical or whatever else. It's, it's all very straightforward, really, like German arms between 1933 and 45. Occasionally, it will be just me regurgitating historical stories with cheap sound effects and poorly crafted accents that border on cultural appropriation, but this episode is not one of those episodes. I'll tell you what, I am as eager to get into this episode as Scott Morrison was to bugger off to Hawaii a few years back. Not only because it is about the pin-up boy of the 19th century, the little man with the big hat, the historical heartthrob himself, Napoleon Bonaparte, but because through the power of the electric internets, we are joined all the way from the Emerald Isle by the greatest Napoleonic meme maker of all time, who recently graduated with a Masters in Military History and Strategic Studies, and he is in the early phases of his PhD. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Mr. Mr. Aaron Keegan. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Thanks very much for having me. Delighted to be here. It's great to have you here all the way from the Emerald Isle, glistening green and fresh out of St. Patrick's Day. And you're not looking relatively uh, hungover. You look fresh. You look ready to go. That's that's just the camera magic. That's all that is. All I have this... to put on a massive filter. Like, These... This isn't even the real me that you're looking at. This... <laughs> the Irish stereotypes are all wrong, everyone. I can tell you, he looks fresh <laughs> as. Um, so, mate, we're here to talk about Napoleon. Yes, And you, like me, have got a huge crush on the guy. And you've do. dedicated great portions of your adult life to studying uh, him. But, mate, where did this all start? Where did you get so interested in Napoleonic and military history? In a fit of what I can only describe as youthful debauchery, I stole a book from a library. And the it's book outrageous. was on Napoleon. I know, it's <laughs> terrible. Um, we had, this is going back to the start of, high school, secondary school here. And there was, they were trying to get us into the library and, you know, to read in our spare time and stuff like that. I had always loved history. My grandfather was mad into history. So I went straight to the history section and it was completely barren, except for one book, which I still have up on my shelf, which was actually about the downfall of Napoleon. Mm. So I started reading about all the horrible things that happened. And the first question that I came up with was, well, how did he even get into this position in the first place? So that just spurred, you know, a massive love for the guy and just reading into everything that he did. Well, mate, he's a story. He's a story worth telling. That's oh, for absolutely. sure. He's absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, he's a, he's a head turner. Mate, which um, this little book that you've you've come across in the library and you're following your grandfather's passion, this is not an unfamiliar story to, to myself or to many of the listeners because we just love this shit. Like history seems to be almost passed down through our, through our blood, um, if not just in... Uh, the gene pool, but obviously just the interest in it. But mate, you've had to professionalize and academize and uh, officialize and all sorts of eyes that interest, and you've turned it into a degree and, and formal education. Tell me about what you're doing there. That was, uh, we well, we went in um, history when you go into university here anyway. I don't know how it is over there, but it's very general. We, we don't have universities from... here. We just sort of graduate and go, she'll be right, mate. you got Google. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> now, in fairness, most of my degree came from Wikipedia, but hopefully none of my professors are, are listening, so I should be fine. <laughs> so uh, we have a very general strand, and we went from the Vikings up to 
the troubles like uh period after the Irish Civil War up into like yeah. the 1990s so and that was in like three years but one that stood out to me was we we were one of two colleges in the whole country to offer a course on military history yeah so as soon as I was finished with my undergrad straight into that and the first thing I wanted to do was something Napoleonic yeah yeah, that's fantastic. And you're looking at, uh, and if not looking at it, you've started your PhD. Is that right? I'm, I'm looking. I'm about to start. Hopefully, uh, there's the meeting process now from this point on, and to see if I get it. But yeah. So, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here first. Dr. Aaron Keegan, return <laughs> visit to the podcast one day, mate. Let's, uh, with all the pleasantries now dispensed and out of the way, and I have to say the pleasantries are extra pleasant uh, in an Irish accent. It's time for us to to pin on our tree colours and like stomach cancer, get into Napoleon. So, <laughs> oh, no. I know. Uh, you've spoiled the ending. I know. <laughs> I, I felt I, I actually had to have a shower after I wrote you, that joke because I just felt so dirty. <laughs> you're that guy who stands outside of movie theatres, aren't you? Just shouting the ending at people who are walking in. Yeah, he well, dies in, at the end. In my defence, <laughs> if you are like 15 minutes into The Sixth Sense and you haven't realised he's a ghost, you're a moron. Um, <laughs> Mate, so Napoleon, he, he's born on the tiny, tiny island of Corsica, which, if my geography serves me well, is kind of off the coast of Italy there. Um, yeah. But he goes to military school in France. What do we know about Napoleon's life before he gets tangled up in this cheeky baguette-throwing revolution sometime later? His his early life isn't really anything of... Uh... It's not, it's not really too important up until he's about, I'd say, nine years old. It's a very typical... A Corsican nationalist sort of upbringing. His parents were revolutionaries that were looking to separate from the Republic of Genoa, which at the time had owned Corsica. Mm. And the year before Napoleon was born, Genoa said, I'm just, I'm done putting down these rebellions. France, do you want to buy it? And France said, yeah, I'll have that. Yeah, that's fine. So the year before well, he's born... France is pretty close to selling off Louisiana. It's got a bit of time and it's... And it's... Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. all the stuff that isn't mainland France, France just doesn't like. So they just get rid of it and sell it for cheap. So that his parents are very much influencing his upbringing and he's very much a Corsican nationalist. Except his father, uh, there's a chance that he can get into like one of the minor nobilities based mm. on his own sort of Italian uh, history. And he just about gets it. He, he just about uh, makes the mark. And now he's in the French courts. And Napoleon hates him for it because he's just, he's an ardent uh, Corsican nationalist at this point. He's only young, but it's his, his mother, you know, is sort of telling him this, this is the way. And you said he's, so he grows so said up. He's, he's around nine at this time. He's, he's around nine. Mate, yeah. When I was nine, just, just around the time. When I was nine, I had the shits because dad wouldn't give me Pokemon for, for the Game Boy. I mean, Napoleon's nine. He's got the shits because his dad's getting involved in the wrong politics. I mean, the fact that Napoleon's nine and even knows that there are different versions of politics tells you that this yeah. guy's he's switched on. Like he's yeah, not... oh, yeah, absolutely. That's the thing. They're, the French soldiers are obviously sort of around the island because they've only bought it and there's still trouble on the mm. island. They're not finished with it. So he's growing up. When he's at home, his parents are talking about how great it would be for Corsican to be, for Corsica to be independent. And then when he walks outside, there's a bunch of French soldiers eating baguettes and throwing onions everywhere. So as they, like, as they do, something as they never do, change. you know, yeah, so exactly. He uh, he goes over to the mainland. He goes to military school in France. Is this this is obviously his father sort of trying to uh, establish again their their arist their newly formed aristocratic roots uh, yeah. on the mainland? I'm guessing so. 
what happens there? Well, he discovers a love just like yourself of uh, military history. Absolutely. When he gets in, the first thing he starts reading is Caesar and Alexander and Hannibal. And he's just he's absolutely infatuated with the guys. He can't stop. He writes his own history about some of these characters. Again, uh, this what... is a pre this is a preteen reading this stuff. I mean, this is not audiobook. He hasn't got Spotify. He's yeah, reading yeah. the dull texts off the shelf by candlelight. That's well, passion. in fairness, like a lot of uh, exactly like but a lot as a lot of English people would probably tell you, would you rather sit down and read a dull book or talk to a Frenchman? So Napoleon obviously <laughs> spoke or took the uh, <laughs> took took the first one. So you know he's <laughs> he's he's very much on side, but no, no, they smell. I I just I couldn't no. Yeah, so right. but yeah, he's straight away he's straight away into the books, and he's he absolutely absolutely loves these these figures, and that's where. He goes, when he's in school first, he's in the south of France, and this school will prepare you for two things. You'll either go and be in the army, or you'll go off and join the priesthood. So there's a very small chance that Napoleon would have just been Father Bonaparte, but he's, he is loves... That is a terrible name for well, look, a priest. Look... Any, I think if you're a Catholic priest, you don't want the word bone in your name. Like, <laughs> well, it's just not something you want. I think he made the well, right choice. In fairness, the propaganda against him would have been e easier because they could have just said Father Bonaparte, and there you go. That's <laughs> it. That's his whole his whole career is just done. You know. So we he can we can thank school. his early career choices for the rise in uh, innovation yeah. in, in British propaganda. So he yeah. he learns he learns to love military school. He gets quite good at it, and then uh, sort of by his late teens, early twenties, he starts to make something of himself here. So he's has something of a meteoric rise, doesn't he? Um, in his popularity yeah, somewhat. What what actually puts him on the map? What makes people know who he is? Uh, well, first and foremost, it's the fact that the French army just keeps killing off all its generals. So they have to keep looking for new people. And Napoleon is, well, I wouldn't say point... Napoleon is quickly rising, but it's the fact that uh, everyone that's sort of under, you know, the director or the uh, the government at the time is just getting their heads chopped off or being, you know, shipped off somewhere else. So it, it's sort of going down to the lower officer ranks to look for the new, the new generals. Remind me again, 1792 is when Louis and uh, gets his head chopped off, right? And right. Then, then we yeah. go into where the government changes every 15 minutes. So yeah. Napoleon is rising against the backdrop of the reign of terror under Robespierre. And like you say, yeah. it, Robespierre in many ways is kind of clearing the path for fresh blood to rise up through the through the arteries of French government. So he yeah, takes absolutely. the opportunity. And it's not it's not a thing of um, that they're the gen the generals are particularly bad. It's just they happen to be you know noble aristocrats, and yeah. they just didn't well, like them at the time. So it was pretty easy to fall on the wrong side of politics back then. I think. Oh, absolutely easy. There was a case. Um, I can't remember exactly what the year was, but. At the time in the French army, upwards of 80% of the army itself in the officer corps and the generals were of the aristocratic classes. And the very next year, that dropped to between 3 and 5%. And it's so not it's because a of resignations. Decline. Yeah, oh, absolutely. No, well, not voluntary resignations anyway. <laughs> they uh, resigned <laughs> their, their heads from their necks. Yeah. <laughs> well, the guillotine is, is probably the only thing that worked well in this point of French history. Yeah. <laughs> so we... Um, we there's there's an Italian campaign now. I'm guessing that he now at this point he goes to Italy um, under the command of the the French government. Um, what's that about? Why are they invading Italy? And why is and what's Napoleon doing there? This is because of the war, the First Coalition, 
where the new French Republic, it's still Kingdom of France, uh, but soon to be French Republic, declares war on the rest of well, just comes the monarchy, out swinging, so out. just comes pretty out much, swinging. Yeah. yeah. And they're not, they really aren't in a position to do it, but they have a master plan to at least knock Austria out of the war, and it involves two armies pushing through the Rhine up into Germany that way. And there's a third army down south in Italy, which starts purely as a defensive measure, just to make sure that the Italians don't, you know, get in behind them. And then second, it has to become sort of another major player in the war because the German campaign has completely stalled. And Napoleon sees this as an opportunity to be able to say, I'm able to do this, just give Mm -hmm. me the chance to do it. And he puts in, you know, for muskets ammunition cannons at this point he's only a corporal is that right or has he gone up by this point oh he'd be a general at this point by this point okay so we fast forwarded a little bit yeah um and he was a gunner early on wasn't he he was in the artillery to begin with when he was in when he was in school he went and he learned uh the trade to be artillery and he was 16 when he was commissioned as a second lieutenant in um in one of more france's more prestigious artillery regiments absolutely he really Mm. was but he puts in, because when he gets to the army of Italy, they're in a horrible state. There's no food. They're practically eating their shoes. They have no ammunition. <laughs> Not all of them have muskets. They just have nothing. There's this no horses sounds, left. Yeah. You can probably guess where they went. Yeah, um, this just sounds like modern day Russia. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but they don't. Obviously, you don't say that. You say, oh, no, everything's fine. It's it's. Yeah, there's it's... nothing going on here. Don't look at it. It looks. It's, it's Normally fine. The, okay. As I heard the other day, the bigger the front, the bigger the back. So the harder they are telling you to not pay attention, there's more than likely something going on. Pretty okay, much, so pretty he starts much. to get this reputation after he he absolutely dominates in the Italian campaign. What and yeah. what? But then then again in this this I, I don't know if it's still the first coalition, but listeners, uh, the, a coalition is basically all the in a nutshell, it's the surrounding continental powers of Europe and, and the United Kingdom coming together to say, we don't like the idea that you're just killing kings, so we're going to stop your revolution. We're going to stop your republic. We're going to reinstate Louis Eighteenth, which was the king's brother, because um, 17th was a child when he died. Anyway, but, um, you know, it, we have a series of coalitions that rise up against Napoleon. No one is content to allow this just to happen. Um Unlike modern day Ukraine, where everyone's just kind of like saying, hey, stop that. This is actually, it's boots on the ground. They're getting serious and they're, they're going to put down this French, this new French government. And this coalition activity and the defense of France takes Napoleon over to Egypt. Now, at this point, uh, I imagine this is probably later than the first coalition. Um, and in what, in which one do we see Austerlitz? Is that in, uh, is that the Italian campaign? That's the. Uh, when we get to Austerlitz, we're in the third coalition. Okay, all right. So has that happened? Be- that's before the Egyptian campaign. So sh- is that correct, or is that uh, after? I was, I was, I was the Egyptian campaign. Okay, see, I'm, I'm obviously, first, yeah. I'm very clearly an idiot, and my listeners know that. This is this is why I've got you on here. You're the boffin that I've brought on today to, to, to highlight. <laughs> hey, you said that, it, not me. This- you said it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, we'll we'll just stick with Egypt for now, and he, so he goes down to Egypt, right? And this is an incredibly famous trip. This is the not just a and I believe he's getting down there to basically uh, prevent the the British from carrying out operations in that part of the world. Is that right? Yeah. The whole idea is Britain is financing these coalitions. So the Mm. way to hit Britain, if you can't invade it, they've tried invading. They just can't beat the Royal Navy. So the way to beat Britain is to try and cut off the amount of income it's bringing in. Mm. And they get a lot of money from the East. 
So if you can control the trade routes that are going from India to Egypt and up that way, you cut off or at least you control a lot of British trade in the East. So that's why Napoleon goes. That's his main reason for going. And while he's there, he comes across probably one of the most famous archaeological discoveries of all time. And I should, it is worth noting that while it wasn't him that did this, Napoleon was a huge fan of, of cultural preservation. And so it was a team of archaeologists and historians that actually went with him on this tour and they came across the famous Rosetta Stone. Right. This, yeah. yeah, is it, this is right so far? Okay. Yeah, so yeah, the Rosetta Stone, and and yeah. this, this, this stone tablet was basically ancient Egyptian decrees that were written in, in uh, Greek and they were written in, I don't think they were written in Latin, but in, in hieroglyphs um, yeah. and other, and other local languages. And as a result, because they could understand Greek, they could therefore interpret the hieroglyphs and many other ancient languages. So it became an absolute watershed yeah. moment of archeology. span yeah, absolutely. This is where we get the start of looking into like Egypt's history properly, because you can only assume so much from archaeology and digging. But now we have a way to actually be able to translate what they've written down. Mm. And it's the, the story of it is I always find it funny. They found it in some guy's house and not just like lying around. It made up part of his wall. He used it to build his house and just wow. didn't realize how important it was. So they just... So obviously the French came and saw this thing went sacre bleu and they shot up the house, blew it up, and just I'll take that and took it back. That's yeah, and that that's, guy was left without a house. That's so funny, but yeah. it's not the first time that that's kind of happened. I remember a couple of years ago we were in Scotland and we went to Urquhart Castle, which is the castle on, on Loch Ness there, and I remember sort of noting that the castle was so dilapidated, but you know all these bricks were very clear, all these stones were very clearly missing, and I asked the tour guide. Where are they all? They're not on the ground either. I mean, if it was blown up or if it was damaged, then the stones would be around. They said, look around. Can't you notice the, shit, the farmer's fences? Like literally. And you look around at oh. all the stone fences in their <laughs> sheds all around the local area. I just built out of this stone, which is presumably the very, they just thought, all right, there's no one using this stone. So I'm going to take this stone and I'm going to build my house to it. So it's, <laughs> 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 um, while I'm going, I'm going to build a fence and put my sheep in it too. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I think that this is the same sort of necessity arose. They just thought, here's a clay tablet, let's use it. But this Rosetta Stone, and and also, can you bust a myth for me? Please tell me that Napoleon's troops didn't shoot the nose off the Sphinx. No, they didn't. The, the nose was gone at that stage. It oh, could very well have been it. hundreds of years I beforehand. I knew it. But yeah. But they Although, did. Now, there's a famous quote that he says, and I can't recall it, but something along the lines of a thousand years of history looked down at us from these pyramids. Something like that. Yeah, I think. when he's yeah, he's at the Battle of the Pyramids, and mm. he's he's actually nowhere near the pyramids. He's in he's in some um some small small ways bit of uh, an Airbnb there's, there's a river road. running beside him. He's nowhere near the pyramids, but he says to his troops because he's brilliant at propaganda and inspiring. He mm. points up to the top of the pyramid and says, "A thousand years are looking down on you." Yeah, I mean, it's this is again. This is at this point in history. He's probably what in his thirties. Yeah, yeah, he was. He's the, yeah. so he's just so attuned. He is so attuned to to leadership and how to inspire. And I think that you know some of the quotes that he read have read from Seneca or Cicero or even Caesar or whatever else in those books. That I mean, he's, he's got some good things. But this is about the only thing that goes good um, for France yeah, and Egypt was the finding of the Rosetta Stone because you know he ends up skipping town um, and he bolts back to Paris to lead the coup of the 18th Brumaire and i know that many of our listeners are probably thinking what the fuck is a Brumaire and why are there are 18 of them so would you care to explain what that's about Brumaire as it is is one of these things that just come along with revolutions we don't like the old way so we're going to bring in a new way so they have a completely new calendar system and Brumaire 
this it's completely confusing. It runs from October to November, but it's like the twenty second of October to like the twenty second of November or something like that, or maybe before. And they named it after, and this is absolute French genius. This is Brumaire is named after Broom, which just means fog, because in October, in late October, early November, it was quite foggy. So they said, "All right, this is the month of fog." Well, that's, I mean, where they, that's where they get through air from. <laughs> in their defense, in their defense, the they had other things to think about, like you know exactly who they're gonna, whose head they're gonna chop off this afternoon. So I mean, coming up with <laughs> names for the for the new calendar, which just seems like it just seems like such a government department thing to do, isn't it? Doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> overhaul of of structure in living memory, but we start by renaming all of the months just to confuse yeah. everyone. Oh. Yeah. So- but this is when Napoleon uh, is emperor. I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but when he becomes yeah. emperor, one of the first things he does is, this calendar is horrible. And he gets rid of it. Now, he'll keep writing, like, year, whatever the year is in the French Revolution. But, like, he's just, just go back to the old way if you really want to. Like, this oh, well, just doesn't even gonna, make sense to me. If you're going to form an empire and you've got, you are the only one that's using a particular measurement of time and everyone around you is using another measurement of time but the same, surely it's going to have a harder time trying to unify that but we we he actually does though he and i don't have time allocated to it but the napoleonic code where he kind of unifies and codifies much of french ways of doing things but let's let's get back to that so what actually happens then in this foggy months because napoleon's just (laughs) sailed in from egypt he's he's a bit pissed off and he's a bit jet lagged and what's he here to do he initially when he leaves first um he leaves because he hears that uh france's armies are losing so he says, right, well, Egypt isn't working out. So I'll go off and, you know, I'll go off to Germany and I'll, you know, fix everything. But by the time he lands, it's been fixed already. They stabilized the fronts and they're planning new offensives. But why did he go to Germany? A man called Germany, when they're, when they're uh, fighting at the time when he comes back, it's the war of the second coalition. Gotcha. So there's already, there's, there's two armies that are there, but they, they eventually stabilize uh, the fronts and they're, they're doing Gotcha. For a moment again. there, I thought you were confusing your short white guys with megalomaniacal con- constructs <laughs> in their minds. I thought you might have been getting confused. I'm, I'm sure we'll get to that at some point. But <laughs> um, when he lands from Egypt, he's approached by a man, I'm going to butcher the name, I apologize, is uh, Saez, I think it's how you pronounce it, or Saez. And he's basically saying, nobody likes the current government, so let's just do it ourselves. So him... Saez and another guy, I completely blank on his name because he, this third guy just keeps getting replaced. There's a new yeah. guy like yeah. every so often, but um, they, they have a plan to install a triumvirate very much like what Rome had, you know, in mm. the, in the, in their triumvirates. And it would be the three of them would share power as the three consuls of the, of, of France. So they go to the current government and they say there's a Jacobin plot on the way to overthrow you. So you come over here, um, and we'll we'll protect you. And they say, okay, we're off. Uh, but as they're walking or when they're taking their carriages, they don't see nothing's going on around them. And then they get to this place, and Napoleon, part of Napoleon's army, is just stood outside mm. waiting. And they're got something something fishy's going on here. Um, so they they go in anyway, and. Lucien, who is Napoleon's brother, uh, who he's the head of this uh, sort of government, is basically trying to get them to say, you know what, we're we're not actually working out for the French people. Let's hand it over. But none of them are buying it. So Napoleon's getting frustrated and says, 
it, this this is taking way too long. So he barges in and accuses all of them of treason and being traitors. There is some like truth to that because in in the past few years leading up to this, there had been three coups already led mm. by these guys to you know get out their opposition and they'd have you know firm control. But he comes in and they they accuse him of being a traitor and they declare him an outlaw. And there's a story then that one of them apparently tried to stab him, like kill yeah, him. Yes, so I have. Yeah, know? I have heard that. Yeah, but he gets kicked out now, and he goes and he's in front of his troops then. But his brother Lucien comes out and says, "No, we have to do this. It's a, it's now or it's not going to work." And they're going to put you in jail, and they're probably going to chop your head off. So there's a story then again of Lucien takes a sword from one of the soldiers, points it to Napoleon's neck, and says, "If I ever thought." my brother was a traitor, I'd kill him here where he stands. Mm. And the, all of the army... His family says, is so dramatic. Right. Pretty much, yeah. It's just, I mean, <laughs> Italians, you know what you've I mean? Got Ital- but, yeah, you've got French Italians. Like they're, yeah. they're talking with their hands very, very passionately. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, Napoleon <laughs> so it all, it all back of, in. He swaggers back in and he he takes yeah. control. So it's 1799 and he effectively yeah. ends the, uh, the revolution and they've basically yeah. replaced a king with a king. This king's much better than the last one because he's not a king. By 1804, he crowns himself as as emperor of France, etc., etc., etc. I'm sure there's a couple of etcs there, <laughs> but I find this fascinating. This is one of my favourite moments where, at his coronation, um, you know, the the delegates are there from the Catholic Church, I believe, with some sort of archbishop, you know. Um, someone who doesn't have bone in his last name. He's there, he's there <laughs> holding he's, <laughs> he's there holding the crown and Napoleon plucks it from the pillow and adorns it to himself. And there's whole symbolism of no one will crown me except for me. And it's the whole, he is the embodiment of the people and he will crown himself as a representative of the people. And he does yeah. the same for his, for his wife. And I can't remember her name. Josephine. Joseph, thank you, Josephine. Josephine the, yeah. the smelly one who he begs not to wash. And I know yeah. that that's I, I know that that's apparently not even true. I don't know, but I know if you're not sure what I'm talking about, there was apparently a letter that Napoleon wrote to Josephine saying, I'm on my way home. And he'd been away for weeks. Don't wash. I'm on my way yeah. home. <laughs> you know, it, it changes, it changes that the the meaning of Ed Sheeran's song and the, the shape of you or is that the one where it talks about the smell? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Maybe Ed Sheeran doesn't think about smelling. I don't know. <laughs> I know that. What's that? What's that British ex officer who sings in a really high pitch? Uh, James Blunt. James Blunt sings a song oh, about, and he talks about you know the smell of you, or whatever. Disgusting. <laughs> anyway, moving on. So he's now emperor. Um, and if you thought the coalition was cranky before, well, it's just getting started. He finds himself almost immediately, or should I rather say, continually attacked by these coalitions. And and how does he deal with them? This is where we get to Austerlitz now. Yeah. Yeah, we're yeah we're getting to Auschwitz now. Mm. The coalition when he's back at war, um, when the second coalition ends, he the, uh, France is still at war with Britain, uh, with the Peace of Amiens, right? Doesn't last long at all, and the two of them are back at war. Britain in this entire time is really trying to convince the major powers of Europe, Austria, Prussia, Russia, even Spain, to get on board with them, and they're promising money. And this is what really drives them because they're saying, no, they beat us before. Like, we're not ready for this. But Britain is promising them money to make new coalitions uh, against France. Mm. So Napoleon, 1804, 1805, is planning an invasion into Britain when the third coalition starts. And he's waiting for an admiral, 
His name is Villeneuve. He's waiting for his fleet to come up to the north of France so that he can start his crossing. He can't do anything until then, but the coalition war starts. And his plan is, as long as I dismantle the coalition, I can focus again on Britain. So mm. that's what he does. He marches off eastward into Germany because he hears plans of the Austrian army is going to come down and they're going to be joined by a massive Russian army. And together, they're just going to have overwhelming numbers against them. And that's how they're going to beat Napoleon. So Napoleon's plan is, I'll deal with Austria first before Russia gets here, and then I'll move on to Russia. So we get to, on the build up to Austerlitz, we get the Battle of Ulm or the Ulm campaign. And in a month, I think it is, he makes 60,000 soldiers of a 72,000 strong Austrian army surrender. He has them completely surrounded. They can't get out. They can't get back to Vienna. Napoleon occupies Vienna before Austerlitz. There's only 12,000 soldiers from that Austrian army that can retreat back to Russia, who's bringing about 60,000, which kind of levels the playing field when it gets to Austerlitz. These Austrian, Prussian, Russian forces are all led by kings too, aren't they? There's a story. They like are, it's, yeah. it's the the story of Napoleon defeating three kings in one day. Yeah. Is that right? Austerlitz. Austerlitz is that battle. It's the battle of the three emperors. It's mm. himself as emperor of the French. That's right. The yeah. uh, Russian emperor is there, the Tsar, Nicholas. Uh, sorry, not Nicholas. Sorry, Alexander. <laughs> uh, I've jumped a little bit ahead. <laughs> a little bit ahead, yeah. <laughs> Alexander is there. And then the Austrian emperor is there. But yeah. that's he says that when he finishes at Austerlitz, there's great speeches that he has, but the last word on it is a letter that he writes to Josephine. And in it, he just simply says, I have won a great victory over three emperors today. I'm a little tired. <laughs> this is his attitude, you know, like this is a walk in the park. Like they are complete yeah. fools. They have I no idea I, what they're doing. I think he's talking up a game there. I think he would also Absolutely. know that he's just like, this is, I am, I'm, he's starting to feel like a god now. I mean, yeah. he's starting, yeah. he's, he's, he's managed to go his meteoric rise from a nine year old Corsican just rocketing up at astronomical speed to now the emperor of France and now conquering neighboring emperors. This guy, yeah. is, you've got to get a God, a, a God complex. But oh, speaking, absolutely. Speaking of the God complex aspect, he's famous for being short, but he's not that short. He's one six five. Is that right? Yeah, he is. He's about, uh, it, it's puppeted everywhere. He's average high for the time. It's he just is. a thing. He's um, five, Oh, five six five five, the, five five six i think and the english flung so much shit at him for being short but can i say yeah. that napoleon's the bigger man because he never once commented about how shit the british teeth were you know like he he yeah. was just <laughs> he made them a compliment he said that they were a nation of merchants he did like that's did. you know rich people they're all rich over there he did say that all right so here we are we're 18 what year was it austerlitz again 1805 so we're 1805 napoleon has just kicked us all the way out across Eastern Europe. Great Britain, no, still not happy. And Napoleon inst institutes quite a significant number of reforms when he is the Emperor of France. And one of those ones that we're not going to delve into, at least today, is the Napoleonic Code. Like I mentioned before, where he codifies all of French law and economics, basically, and simplifies the whole system into a basically an almanac of how France operates. And this great creates a, a greater sense of cohesion and, and bureaucratic management of the of this huge state and it's it reminds me a little bit of Qin Shi Huang doing that same sort of thing over in ancient China where he he did the same sort of thing by 
having the same road widths and the same currencies used in every different region to speed things right, up. Yeah. So Napoleonic code aside, um, he also institutes what's called the the um, continental fuck. system. Oh, thank you. Yeah. He institutes the <laughs> continental system. Now, this is, to my understanding, and and I, I want you to correct me because I know I'm going to get this wrong. Basically, it's a you are going to play by France's rules or France is going to make sure you don't play at all. And so he creates this system that ostracizes Great Britain from continental Europe to try to cut off, as you mentioned before, their economic life support coming from across the waves. That's that's the trouble with being an uh, an island, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's you're isolated if for most of most of French, uh, England's weaponry and and everything depends on overseas imports. So this continental system is brought in place, and just about everyone's not necessarily happy to abide by it, but they're gonna do it. How's yeah, that he go? forces them. How's he forces them after uh, <laughs> after he kicks ours, as we said. He pretty much forces them. He's this got is the this is his plan. Yeah, this is his plan. His plan was always to be able to beat Britain. It's just mm. he doesn't have the navy to do it, so he has to look to other means. So his strategy then is cut off their trade, as you said. So Austria, Prussia, uh, Russia, eventually uh, Spain, pretty any territories that he owns then are basically told just stop buying British. Uh, it, you know, Brexit before Brexit sort of thing, you know. Uh, but so, th- th- so this is his plan. So Spain at this point, they're friendly with Napoleon. They are. Um, they had been, I can't remember if it's the first or the second coalition, but they had pretty much been humbled and they were out of any, you know, coalition after that. They just, they wouldn't be able to uh, defeat France's uh, armies, especially when they're separated from the rest of the coalitions. You know, Prussia, Austria, and Russia are you know pretty much all together. Spain mm. is sort of the outlier, but Napoleon. There's two reasons why Napoleon invades Spain. Then one is to enforce the continental system because he wants to get to Portugal. So he marches troops through Spain. He's allowed to into Portugal to take Portugal, uh, and then when they're finished with that, he leads the coup as he's famous for in mm. Spain. And but the second reason is, even though they were allied. Napoleon doesn't like the way that Spain is being governed and how the army uh, is being led. So he pretty much just puts in his own people just to make sure that his southern border is secure while he focuses east and north. He does the same thing in Italy. He does, yeah. Yeah, he, he's got he, he's, he's got a brother somewhere that's sitting on a throne. Is that in Italy or is that in Spain? He has this... His son is made the king of Italy. Then okay. he puts his brother's... He makes one of his brothers, um, I think it's Joseph, king of Spain. Uh, there's a king in Holland. There's he, when, when, obviously he's an emperor. He so they he, have, you know, uh, haven't they just pinned their colours on the right on the right mast? Hey, like they have really backed the right horse at least for now. Pretty much. <laughs> um, so England at this point, not happy, Jan, uh, which you won't yeah. understand because that's an Australian ad reference. So I just realised that that probably wouldn't tr- <laughs> wouldn't translate at all. <laughs> kind of like Vegemite might or chicken twisties. Um, I th- I think that uh, yeah so and, and then then he goes on to do his most famous cluster <laughs> Russia yeah. yeah what I don't the hell I'm going to cry I don't mean to upset you there's two ways to make this Irishman cry and that's tell him that there's no Guinness left and that oh no stop why why are you doing this to me i'm not coming back fuck it i'm not coming back i'm done just like napoleon in russia all right so what happens so he he why does he go over to russia what's he doing when 
Russia is beaten in the previous coalition, he enforces what's called the Treaties of Tilsit, or Til, yeah, Tilsit, and it basically that puts Russia into the continental system and says you can't trade with Britain anymore. You can only trade with France and his subjects. But Russia's economy really needs the overseas trade. It is horrible. They they mm. really need this income. So between 1807 and 1812, they're slowly but surely undermining the continental system by bringing in some... The odd British ship lands in port, they got lost, and you know they just dumped their cargo and said, we'll just go back, it's fine. With, you know, heavy pockets. But... Mm. It it's slowly it becomes just more and more obvious where they're just taking in tons and tons uh, at a time, you know. So Napoleon issues an ultimatum, stop or I'm coming for you. And the Tsar says, Come at me, bitch. And he does. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> So Napoleon in the summer of eighteen twelve invades Russia to hopefully beat them, enforce the continental system again, and then continue his, you know, his long war with Britain. Mm. And it does not go well. It does not. Napoleon's now, plan was always to defeat an army decisively so that there's smash no and army grab. left. Get in quick and go home. Yep. Pretty sit much, him, sit yeah. Him, sit him down and then get back home in time for dinner. But the problem is you can't sit him down if they don't stand still. And the Russians yeah. just retreat further and further and further back. And while they're going, they do scorched earth, don't they? They start setting fire to all their own settlements and yeah. farms. And the further deep, deeper into Russia that Napoleon marches his troops, the hungrier they get, the further they get, and then winter sets in. Now, we've got some horrible statistics on this. Well, I'm imagining you do. How many troops did he take in? Between all of his armies, um, his his grand army, his his centre force is about 650,000. So when... got over half a million soldiers... Not, yeah. not even that, because he's joined with his allies. You are talking about close to a million soldiers who are at somewhere in Russian this is the, territory. This is the biggest standing army in the history of the earth. I mean, this yeah. is this is, and this is the first time the Napoleonic Wars is where we actually see the biggest armies fielded at this point in any yeah. part of human history. And nothing like this is thought of before in history. But that's exactly why Napoleon thinks of it. He mm. knows that Russia is huge. He needs the manpower to be able to cover it all as he's walking in. This and... guy is such a genius. How does he not see this happening? This is not the first time that Russians have used this style of fighting either. Why does he persist with this? It's in men are starving, they're freezing to death. Why yeah. does he not stop? It's back with that idea of the decisive battle. Mm. As long as he gets one and the Russian army doesn't exist, he, he can do whatever he likes with the Russian government. When the Tsar mm. sues for peace because he just doesn't have a way to defend his territories, that's when Napoleon wins. So Napoleon really tries to, you see it across the coalition campaigns, his his strategies last about a year less, you know, but, but, you know, in the span of a year. And that's purely find the biggest army, destroy it, and then do what I want he's uh, pretty, with the rest he, of it. So he's somewhat single-minded with a short attention span. Pretty much, yeah. But the thing is, it works, and it has worked. Yeah, for it's him, worked. So there's no it's, reason for a change tune. Until know? this point, it starts. And to be honest, yeah. I would, I, I honestly believe that the Russians had no idea really if they knew it was going to work. I think that they were kind of just going with it as well. I think they would have known by this point what Napoleon's mo was, how he operated, and they thought, well, if we just yeah. keep drawing back. But I don't think they would have realized just how successful this was going to be. So he takes yeah. nearly a million soldiers into Russia, and after how long? 
Is it? Is it? It's less than twelve months, isn't it? It's it's six months. It's five six months. Within no. five or six months, he he retreats finally and leaves yeah. Russia with much less than that. Dregs, Count. absolute dregs. Maybe a hundred plus thousand. Yeah. You know, so he's from... he's lost nearly ninety percent of the Grand Army, and he's on yeah. his way back back to Paris. And I mean, he is licking his wounds. And I mean, there wouldn't be enough saliva on the biggest tongue in the world to lick that wound, you know? And, <laughs> yeah. and so he gets back and it, it's all over for him. When he gets back to Paris, he's got the armed guard of the, of the European coalition standing around saying, it's time to go Napoleon. You can't be here no more. You know, like, so they, they take him. I do it, like how the armed guard of the European Alliance is an American mafioso. I do. I well, appreciate that. <laughs> They flew them in especially to take care of this. This is when you got a, when you got a big fish, you need a big pan, you know. And so, <laughs> and so anyway, they come in and they say to him that you've got to get out of here. They they basically force him to abdicate, which means basically quit. And uh, he's arrested. He's taken under lock and key by the British, and uh, he's taken out. And while he's on the road to his new home on the island of Elba in the Mediterranean. His uh Saint Helena first. Oh, Sorry, Elba. Sorry, no way. Hang on, hang so on. So I'm right, on. and you're wrong. Saint Helena, I you're, thought. Was, you're right. right. It's Elba first. It, it's Elba first. Ladies and gentlemen, again, you heard it first. <laughs> I, I have outboffened the boffin. Um, <laughs> I can't he, believe I've done that as well. I was like, oh no. So you have just embarrassed yourself on international podcast, and all three of my listeners will find this moment so hilarious. <laughs> um. So while that's happening, they reinstate the coalition, reinstate uh, the the Bourbon line, which is at this point Louis the Seventh, uh, Louis the Eighteenth, the king of yeah. the former brother, uh, and they basically say to France, "All right, as you were, let's let's rewind to 1799 and just pretend none of that shit ever happened." And Napoleon is exiled and held under house arrest on the island of Elba in the Mediterranean, and that's the end. Ah, uh, just gammon. No, which also I probably have to explain to you the word gammon is uh, is a local uh, slang word for for joking. Um, just joking. So he's he's on this island, but he doesn't stay. What's he do? What's he? What's his plan? Napoleon, when he's on Elba, is constantly getting information from the mainland, and as the months go by, the French people are not happy with having the Bourbons back, and especially not this new Louis who is almost a carbon copy of you know who his uh his predecessor mm. like it, it they're they're really there's really looking like there's nothing. going to be another revolution yeah pretty they've much honestly learned nothing these idiots yeah they just they've no idea um so so napoleon he, he's inspired by these he's inspired by the, the stories of the ineptitude of the the new french monarch yeah and he and gets he off takes... elba yeah, he takes a few of his imperial guard who went uh, with him to Elba. He was allowed this by the coalition. He takes them uh, and he sails for the south of France and he, he makes his landing. And after months, Napoleon is back in France. But this 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 month is what is one of my favorite stories of all history. On his and I don't know how much of this is rumor. And I'm gonna say none of it. I hope it's all true. But I know that he's work. He's walking. He's he's on foot making his way to Paris from southern France, which. For those of you who don't know, it's a fair walk. Um, and on the way, he gets recognised and he gathers more and more followers. So he's picking up momentum as he's making this walk. And and Louis, uh, King Louis, rightfully shits himself and orders, yeah. I think from memory, I could be wrong here, I think it's Marshal Ney, 
he gets yeah. Marshal, he gets Marshal Ney and, and he gets the, the new French, you know, um, Royal Army. And he says, you know, you boys get down there and you bring me back that baguette in a cage. Okay. Because I <laughs> you can't do, call him a baguette. He was born Corsica Italian. I don't like this, this slippery olive oil Corsican <laughs> fool. <laughs> Go and put him in a cage and bring him back to me. And so Ney goes down there and Napoleon basically walks around the corner and he sees this massive line of infantry men. There's, I believe there's even cavalry and there's some artillery there. There's the whole kit and caboodle in front of him, pointing at him, ready to shoot this guy. And Napoleon famously, if not a little bit dramatically, true to form, stands there and opens his breast coat and says something along the lines of, if you will shoot your emperor, then here I am. And no well, one. I've got, I've got great news for you. It's all true. Yes. Oh, it's all true. <laughs> that is so good. That's such are... a, that is such a badass moment. Yeah. But it's, it's made better because Ney's force is about 3000 strong and not a single one of them shot their emperor. That's unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's not that's that is impressive in so many ways. First of all, that this little man had the balls to stand there and risk that shot because it's one shot, it's all over. But let's face yeah. it, this guy can't live if he's not yeah. on top. He'd rather it's it's death or dishonor. Like, and the fact that three thousand I don't know three thousand people, let alone trust three thousand of them not to shoot yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the thing, you know. That's, I mean, um, Napoleon it, is safer it's... in front of this army than Americans are in schools. Oh, there you go. is that too? That's, that's is the that, thing. Is... <laughs> <laughs> this, that's too dark. I've, I've just again, I need to I need to watch these jokes that I'm writing. Someone will get me. <laughs> but. This is this is the thing. When we talk about in history the legitimacy of a monarch, I don't think you can get any more legitimate than being declared an outlaw, being told that if you if there's any soldier in front of you, he's going to either shoot you or bayonet you. Walking out in front of three thousand soldiers who are just given the order to fire and not a shot goes off. I can't think of a more legitimate monarch than that. Mm. Mm. That's that, that's so true. That's so true. Anyway, so these all of these three thousand strong, and what's Marshal Ney do? Does he join him? He does. Okay, so Ney, Ney as well. He joins. He joins yeah. with Napoleon, and they make their way. And by the time they get to Paris, of course, Louis has absolutely hot trotted it out of there. Yeah, and then here there's we go. Brilliant, that there's a brilliant. Um, I think it was made in Prussia. I can't remember exactly, but it's a print. You know, one of these. Um, like small painting. You know, one mm. of these things. Look at yeah, and it's it's there's two uh there's two pictures on it. And it's, I can't remember the exact dates, but it's the day before Napoleon gets back to Paris and the day he's in Paris. And the day before are these palace guards with their swords swearing their allegiance to Louis. Mm. And the, the next one is the next day and they've all thrown down their swords in front of Napoleon and they're on hands and knees begging for his forgiveness. Mm. It's an abs- It's a brilliant print. I wish I knew the name of it. But it's a, it's an incredible print. You can find it if you just if you search for it. It's, yeah, it's if we, I'm gonna, incredible. I'll put a, I'll put a copy of that print up on uh, on Instagram when the when the episode um comes out. So he's back in he's, you know, the bitch is back. Quote Elton John. Um, and he's <laughs> he's not satisfied though. He's got itchy feet and he's keen to get some revenge. So here, where is he? And it, and this is where we the the end game becomes Waterloo here because we know that an an inter enter stage left. Uh, one of the most uh, notorious, no, I shouldn't say notorious, famous British commanders, which is Arthur Wellington, Arthur Wellesley, sorry. Um, Arthur Wellesley, is he's basically in charge of overseeing the, the British contingent in the coalition and basically leading the coalition. 
He later goes on to become a prime minister, actually, for Queen Victoria. But uh, more about that some other day. Um, he's in Belgium at a party, isn't he not? Um, and he, he, he gets wind that Napoleon's on the march. Where is Napoleon going at this point? Napoleon, at this time, everyone obviously knows that Napoleon is back and this massive grand coalition has formed against him. Now, this is this is brilliant. The previous coalitions were all against France trying to reinstate the monarchy. This coalition, the Seventh Coalition, is purely against Napoleon himself. They don't care about France right now. They just want to get rid of Napoleon. He is an absolute menace. But they all think he's still in Paris until news comes from the Prussians that he's on the move. Hmm. The the coalition armies are moving their armies to France because they've you know they've declared war on Napoleon, so they're obviously moving to get him. Napoleon, in again, brilliant. This is what he does: divide and conquer. He spots that as long as I can keep the Prussian and the British armies, which are the closest uh, threat to him, and then he can sort of swing eastward. But as long as I can keep those two armies separated, I can deal with each of them individually, and then I can move on. Hmm. So Wellington is again that single mindedness. Hey, he does struggle with the idea of, yeah, 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 exactly. Wellington isn't ready for it. Hmm. Um, Now he has obviously has his army in Belgium. He's ready to go, but he's at the Duchess of Richmond's ball. He's just having a good time. You know, like this is going to be an easy war. That everyone thinks this is going to be an easy war. And and every indicator says this guy's just fresh out of prison and he's got a ragtag band with him. Like, this is not. This is this is like only a couple of months after he's even escaped from Elba. I mean, everyone around him is going to underestimate and say, "Well, there's no way that France is reunified so quickly behind this man." Yeah. So they're sort of bolstered a bit because when Napoleon comes back, he sues for peace with every major power, and they all kind of call his bluff and say, "You're only doing this so that you can build up your army again." And then mm. when you do that, we're all going to be screwed. So they say no, and they 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 stay on the warpath. Yeah, right. So then, so they all rendezvous together in Belgium outside of the town of Waterloo, made infamous by ABBA. Um, and it doesn't it's, it's quite brilliant that a French army fought a battle at Waterloo inspired by the ABBA song. Yes, that's well, that's it, from what I'd read in my research. Napoleon chose that site because he was a huge fan of uh, exactly of, yeah. of Frida sent, and uh, Agnetta. Yeah, he sent one of his marshals to be the king of Sweden. So yeah, that was yeah, that was Mar- Marshal Benny and uh, General yeah. Bjorn. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, for those Year Eleven students listening, what I just said now is all totally untrue. And if you write that Abba was the inspiration behind the choice of battle site in your essays, then <laughs> I'm probably not going to recognise it. So it doesn't go well. It famously, this is where Napoleon goes down, and it was not an easy battle by any stretch of the imagination they began fighting at what uh, 10 o'clock in the morning i think and yeah on, Napoleon on has to wait yeah he, he has to wait because it was raining the previous day he couldn't get his cannons up he wanted to start as early as six o'clock in the morning yeah but he couldn't get the it, british he off couldn't guard. get the heavy artillery through the sludge just yeah. slowed him down and wellington being of course a man of punctuality knew exactly what time he was going to be done could see from his horseback exactly what he needed to see <laughs> through his telescopic eye um and uh it at the end of the day, I mean, Napoleon had he he was up for part of that battle, wasn't he? He was actually on. They they were doing all right. It was only because of the arrival of the uh, was it the Prussians at the end of the day. Prussians, that, yeah. So um, I think Wellesley recorded that Waterloo was the nearest run thing you ever saw in yeah. your life, and I yeah. think that that when you've got your great enemy saying that this battle could have honestly gone either way, 
Um, and like like you just said before, this is not just any coalition. This is a coalition on steroids. So even yeah. though Napoleon, this is, I mean, lots of lots of people who like to think that Napoleon complex, etc., and so forth, is for you know people people who think he's overrated. Those people can just flog off because yes, he lost at Waterloo. Anyone would have lost at Waterloo, but just because anyone would have not made it near run. It should have been, by definition, a complete and utter rout of the French army in an extremely short period of time. But it wasn't. It was an all-day fight that required three unified massive imperial armies to do. And even those enemy, even the enemies of the guy at the end of the day say, shit, boys, that was close. I mean, we got him, but that was close, right? Yeah. If the thing with Waterloo is the Prussians were meant to be somewhere else and they give Marshal Grouchy, who was the last Marshal to be named of the Empire, they just give him the slip. Mm. And Napoleon is without 30,000 men at the battle. But just before the Prussians arrive, the British lines are starting to falter. They're just, mm. they're taking too much damage. And if he had an hour, you know, two at most, there was going to be a break somewhere in that line. But the yeah. Prussians arrived perfectly on time that the French were fighting all day. There's a fresh army after showing up on their right flank. They just yeah. can't deal with it. Like, this is um, so, this battle is so close. I imagine that they came flying in with the winged hussars played by Sabaton <laughs> at the front. And the winged hussars arrive. Yeah. Um, so Napoleon basically takes stock. He realizes it's over, Red Rover, but he does, he does attempt to flee, but he is captured. And this time, yeah. uh, they send him somewhere far worse. They send him to Cornwall. No, I'm kidding. They send him all the way to. <laughs> <laughs> they send him all the way to um to to St Helena, which is the furthest flung island in the British Empire. But this is going to raise a lot of questions with our listeners. Why the hell didn't they just shoot the bastard? Because that's how the other wars with the coalitions had started. The French people at the start of their revolution, well, it's not start of the revolution, but early on in their revolution, were more than happy to kill a king, hmm. you know. So they don't want, they don't want the thing of a foreign army executing their own really legitimate monarch, or else there's going to be another revolution, and it's going to be against Louis, and Louis, another Louis is going to lose his head. Yeah. They just can't because they don't want another ten years or twenty years. Yeah, about 20 years of fighting on the European mainland. They and just they... can't. But the thing is, the British are the only ones to say, don't execute them. The Russians, right. the Prussians, the Austrians all want them dead. Marshal Blue, uh, Blucher mm. uh, of the, the He's Prussian, Prussian isn't he? Yep. He, yeah, he is driven to insanity with bloodlust for Napoleon. There's a story. I always, I always love seeing the story. There's a story that uh, Blucher, it's either on the eve of Waterloo or slightly after it. He's so insane that he was trying to convince two women that he met on the day that he was pregnant, specifically with an elephant. I don't know how true that story is. Holy but shit. It pops up in the, in I'm going to leave books. that joke that I just came. I had yeah. six jokes just flood my head and I'm going to leave every single one of them in there. <laughs> Luke, he's driven to insanity. He wants blood. You know, because this yeah. is years of fighting. So many thousands of Prussians are dead, yeah. and Russians and Austrians and Spanish and all, and British. Yeah. 
But the British are saying, no, look at the bigger picture here. There's going to be another revolution. So they kick them off to that's quite That's quite forward thinking of them. And I mean, again, it's it's we, if we fast forward and make that, that we inferred before a link between Napoleon Napoleon and Hitler. And there is a there is a, a clear link to be had there purely because Hitler wanted a clear link there. Um, so he basically fabricated one or shaped his whole yeah. ideology on it. Um, but they, I think they understood, like, I mean, they, the Nuremberg trials came after World War II. And I think that while in that case, the Nuremberg trials created a sense of closure and an end to a very turbulent time, um, I think this was a, this was a different era. And the idea of executing Napoleon when so many, I mean, when, when Hitler went down and the third Reich ended, I mean, there wasn't a whole heap of Germans saying we still love you. I mean, yeah, there wasn't yeah, a whole lot exactly, of Germans yeah. or Germany left full stop, but there's still a very capable France still sitting there full of French as ever, yeah. um, who all say we kind of like that guy. But anyway, let's let's leave that. But I, I think it's also possible that they had a respect for the guy as well. I mean, for Welling, for Wellesley to say what he said about, you know, a near he, he he had as much venom as these guys could spit at each other. I think they did actually have a deep seated respect for one another, uh, at least for each other's command. They weren't stupid. Yeah. Um, they weren't, they certainly yeah. weren't ignorant or unkind. So he goes all the way to St. Helena, eh, too far for anyone to actually visit. And he's allowed to take some family and friends, but only a couple go. <laughs> They're kind yeah. of like, we yeah. love you, man, but we don't love you that much. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's there's not go- none, Helena. Like, there's no point in going. It's like, bon voyage, have fun. Yeah, it's all the best. And I think it's at this point that Napoleon realized he looks around the bleak, it's a very windswept, totally isolated piece of rock. Um, yeah. In the in is it in the South Atlantic? I think I'm not quite sure. From my, my geography is horrible, so mine I... <laughs> is mine is two. Um, but it's anyway, off the, it's off the coast of Africa anyway. So I will I will say yes. Okay. Okay. So um, so he's he's right. He's all the way down there, and I think at this point he realizes it's over. Like yeah. it's over, and he's he's not he's not a man to kill himself. This was a different time. Suicide was not something you did. It wasn't Japan or or Germany at the end of World War Two. This was a time where he's not going to just do that. So yeah. he does what every respectable defeated imperialist does and just starts basically writing books and reading books by the fire, doesn't he? Pretty much, yeah. His life is, it's almost like a carbon copy of how he started life. It's from very lower nobility and they don't, they don't, they have a bit, but they don't have much, obviously. Um, they're not peasants, but Napoleon has pretty much ended his career kind of where he started. That's, he's he's nobody a... anymore, you know? That's a beautiful comparison that you've just made there. I've never heard that before. You've there shocked you go. me. That's, I really yeah. like well, that. Is that is really true? He began with like he literally just returns to default settings. Pretty much, yeah. That's it exactly. Like it was a it was a, it was a Bonaparte reboot. Um, yeah. <laughs> all right, but then but then a couple of years later, at age how old is he? He 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 gets quite chronic pain and oh, how old he's, is he he's he in dies? his he's he's in his late fifties. He doesn't he doesn't survive. Mm. Um, into his 60s uh mm. i think oh i think it, no he's not in his late 50s i think he's 51 i think okay like he's 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 young you know mm. um from... even by those standards he is still quite young because i mean wellesley lives right up and right into his 80s yeah. but um i think even older i think it's a stupid amount of length of life that he's got but he dies of what's presumed now to be stomach cancer um yeah. at the time there were some questions around what he'd done and he did suspect poisoning did he not arsenic poisoning they thought he thought because he was growing weaker and weaker uh, yeah. that the British were trying to poison him and to yeah. sort of slowly you know 
get get rid of him. It turns out it's just it was in hair products that they use at the time. There was arsenic in it, and obviously he's using them. Mm. Um, so that's and it's it's actually a, a conspiracy theory now still that yeah. Napoleon was poisoned, and they point to the fact that in the autopsy they found traces of arsenic, mm. but it was it was purely because of like some of the products he was using. You know, Dove conditioner in his hair, you and know, I believe, with I be, and it wasn't just a British autopsy though, was it? They did have a bit of a United Nations, not that it exists, but yeah. their equivalent of United Nations sort of medical exercise on. Yeah, every everyone grabbed a little piece and had a look at it um, to make sure that there was no foul play there. I think the British were yeah. looking for exoneration again, or to fear that that comeback from France saying, "Sacre bleu, you have killed the emperor." Yeah. All right, so that brings us to the end of our and end of our uh, wrapping up now, and that brings us to what we call the minute of suffering, my friend. So you oh, are no. going to have a minute uninterrupted. I'm not going to say anything, but I am going to keep an eye on my watch. And in that minute, I would like you to summarize not just everything that we've talked about. That's they they've just done that. I want you to in a minute tell me everything that you want our listeners to remember and know about Napoleon and his and his legacy. All right. Are you ready for this? No, but we'll go for it anyway. That's the spirit, old chum. <laughs> All right. I'll count you in in three, two, one, go. Napoleon was born on a small island of Corsica to a very, a very noble but small family lineage. He rises through the ranks and becomes the emperor of the French. That alone is a massive history that carries on well into the late 19th and even the early 20th centuries. The year of revolution in Europe, the 1850s, are inspired greatly because of Napoleon and what he did and things like his Napoleonic Code. The Napoleonic Code specifically was a massive liberal project that he was able to undertake. And a lot of that still exists in a lot of Europe's uh, constitutions today. To this very day, Napoleon is still a divided figure. But what I have to ask everyone who wants to read and know about Napoleon, read for yourself. Make your own decision. Don't listen to quacks on the internet like me. Pick up a book. Read. He is an incredible figure. I promise you it'll be well worth it. Look at that. With three with three seconds to spare. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> You've nailed it. You were so worried about this. I mean, I weeks was, ago you were oh. saying, oh, I'm really keen for this podcast, but that last one minute can piss off. Yeah. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for coming on the show, mate. I've actually really loved having you here. Thanks very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. I say that to all of my guests, but I, I mean it when I say it to you. So that's, it has... <laughs> oh, I, I trust you. I trust you. Are the, you are the, the first Irish accent that we've had on the show. I'm actually, actually, I think that's... Uh, no, you're not the first accent, but you are the first Irish accent. So I'd love to have you back on the show again sometime soon um, down the track to talk more, probably maybe a little bit more focused look into Napoleon, maybe a particular battle or a particular idea. Anytime. Yeah, I'd be more than happy to. And, mate, well, we wish you all the very, very best with your PhD uh, and your continued studied. And, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to to get in touch with this absolute genius, I'd like you to go to Instagram and follow the Napoleonic underscore meme underscore factory on there. Uh, you will get guaranteed chuckles. I mean, the more you understand about Napoleon, the more you will understand these memes. But the more you understand these memes, the more you will understand Napoleon. It is just a vicious cycle of brilliance. So jump on over there and give him a follow. And uh, again, Aaron, thanks for coming on the show, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. That brings this episode of Modern History to an end. And we hope you've enjoyed it as much as Napoleon Bonaparte enjoyed gutter-stomping Austrians, bashing Brits and wrecking Russians. 
If you like this episode, please hit that subscribe button wherever you are listening from and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modern underscore gistry for more content and further information on this episode. This episode was produced by me, starred special guest Aaron Keegan, and the Modern Gistry theme song was written and recorded by Ella Dwyer. See you later, alligator. Adieu.